So let me ask you this. Where do you get your news and how reliable is your source? So there's all place, kinds of places that we can get our news these days. Uh, of course, there's kind of big news outlets uh, that are online that write articles. Uh, you can find them on TV. You can watch their videos all over the place. Um, there are these, these big um, name brand news outlets. And when you're watching or reading something that they've put out there, um, you're, you're hoping that they are living up to some of the standards and ethics of journalism, which here in North America and in a lot of places around the world, um, in order to get the credentials to be one of those big networks and for them to be able to have access to different events, whether it's, it's politics or something else, um, they really need to make sure that they are living up to those standards. Um, and there's, there's governing bodies that make sure that they do that. Um, but there's all kinds of other places where we get our news. We get our news sometimes through the tabloids, and the tabloids are, are um, much less interested in some of those major standards that some of the, the, the big networks are, right? They're more interested in entertaining us, and so um, they'll take something, they'll bend a story, uh, explosive titles. They're, they're really just trying to get people to tune in and to read, uh, but in, in terms of the actual truth and accuracy, uh, there's a lot more leeway there for people in the tabloids. Same thing, a lot of us get our news uh, on social media. And uh, social media has probably some people that are really reliable and then some that are not reliable, people that are really knowledgeable and people that are less knowledgeable. And uh, most of us have been taught that you got to be careful when you're on social media because you don't always know exactly uh, who it is that's telling you certain information and how reliable they are, how much knowledge and research they've done, uh, whether or not they've really dug into sources. But if we go back to some of those big accredited news agencies, we we find that some of their standards are things like not just reporting uh, what they hear, but they have to make sure that there's some form of accuracy and reliability. And so they talk about having eyewitnesses, for example, to certain stories. Can I go to a primary source, somebody who saw something, heard something, has firsthand experience? But then more than that, they have to find corroborating evidence or uh, witnesses. So uh, not just what one person says, because they could easily be lying, they could make something up, but are there other people that are saying the same thing, that heard the same thing, saw the same thing? Is there any evidence that what they've said uh, actually happened and happened the way that they've said it happened? And so uh, a good journalist is going to dig in not just to one source, but they're going to try and find a primary source and then corroborate that source with other sources, evidence, uh, and kind of build up some reliability so that when they share this and say, this is what happened, these are the facts, we have a, a reasonable uh, grounds to actually believe that those things happened. Now, in, in recent years, one of the terms that has become really popular is fake news. Because people look at different ways that uh, events are being reported and interpreted and talked about, and they say, that's not actually how it happened, and this news agency, they should know better, they should be reporting better. But what happens is that this happens uh, kind of from both sides to both sides or multiple sides where uh, people uh, are looking at different ways that the news agencies are reporting. And if they don't like it, they're saying, this is fake. This is not true. And bringing into question the reliability of some of those news outlets and, and where we hear it. Now, this is a, a difficulty that really comes from a huge range of where we, sources where we get our news from. It comes from uh, the biggest kind of national or international news sources asking, are they doing the work of making sure that they're reporting accurately? And we have to decide whether we think they are or they aren't. Are they really biased? Are they just telling us what they want to believe? Are they bending the facts and interpreting them a certain way? 
And it goes all the way through down, again, through uh, maybe smaller uh, news chains, uh, even the tabloids. And then, of course, on the internet, we have uh, such a climate that anybody can create a website and say anything. And, and we don't always know what somebody's credentials are and what their research is and how reliable their information is and whether what they're saying is actually true. And so uh, this whole idea of fake news is one thrown around. And a lot of times people throwing it around saying, I don't want anybody to believe what this person is saying. That's fake. You got to believe what I think. Um, and some of that, those questions around reliability have become really important and asking who's, who's reporting things in an accurate way. And one of the questions that comes up for me is, can we report things in an unbiased way? Because all of us have a certain bias, a certain leaning. We see things a certain way, our perspective. And uh, when we take the facts, we're always interpreting them. And so people who are trying to report news are, are going to be doing that. And so we've come to a, a place uh, where that's just part of, of our culture. It's part of uh, how we become informed. And, and hopefully uh, we look for good ways to try and find out rela reliable information from sources um, that know what they're talking about and people who are reporting it, hopefully in a somewhat accurate way. But it doesn't mean that we don't have uh, interpretation to, to try and get that information. And we have the same problem when it comes to the Bible and specifically when it comes to the Gospels. And today what I want to talk about is, are the, are the Gospels reliable? When we come to the Bible and we read about Jesus, and we could do this with the entire Bibles, today specifically I want to talk about uh, the Gospels, those stories about the, the life of Jesus and the death of Jesus, even the resurrection, um, and ask, are these reliable? Is this fake news? Is this just something somebody's made up? Is there a, a bias uh, that, that people have written into it? Should we believe anything? Or are these just kind of made up stories? Wow, yeah, here's a guy named Jesus, and he did great miracles and even rose from the dead. And some people will look at that and say, uh, why should we believe that? Because people don't come back from the dead. And, uh, you know, a lot of people are very skeptical. Maybe you're very skeptical about whether or not miracles happen. And maybe this is just written from a, a very biased perspective. And can we really believe it? Or is it kind of fake news? So I want to talk a little bit about what the Gospels are, where we get them from. I want to come head on today to some of the real challenges for those who actually believe that the Gospels are reliable, because there are some problems that we need to, to, to really deal with, and I want to talk about those today as well. But first, let's talk a little bit about how did we get the Gospels? Uh, where did the Gospels come from? Uh, because we do want to talk about some of the, the realities that there's inconsistencies, there's disagreement within the four Gospels that we have uh, in the Bible, some things that seem to be just flat out contradictory. So uh, where do we get them? How did the Gospels uh, come to be? And that's going to help us figure out whether or not we can even uh, start to think about uh, whether or not they're reliable. So I want to do this starting from Luke chapter 1. Luke is one of the four Gospels in the Bible. And Luke, who writes this, he starts off by telling us how he got his information and how his gospel was formed, which is really informative uh, for the discussion on, on where did the gospels come from. So here's what he says, the beginning of Luke chapter 1. It says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainly that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So this is Luke explaining to Theophilus. Uh, we don't know a ton about Theophilus. 
except that he's probably someone uh, who has commissioned Luke to write a gospel, to write uh, about Jesus and to tell him about uh, who Jesus is in an orderly way. And so he's writing him uh, and he starts by saying, this is how I've gone about doing it. Uh, Luke and Acts, by the way, are two parts of the same story. Luke wrote uh, through the gospel and then into Acts. So here's some components of how he has built the Gospels, which really helps us to understand in the ancient world, how would someone go about writing something like the Gospels? First, he mentions eyewitnesses. So beginning with these eyewitnesses, one thing you should know is uh, the dating of the Gospels, especially the synoptic Gospels, which are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, they all have a lot of similarities. Uh, all of them were written within one lifetime of the death of Jesus. So uh, scholars believe, most scholars agree that Mark was probably the first one written. It was probably written in the 50s. So within 20, 25 years of the death of Jesus. And then Matthew and Luke were written sometime after that, uh, maybe in the 60s or 70s. Some people, uh, not, not super common, but uh, some people would even date the Gospel of Luke as written maybe in the 80s. But all of them written within one lifetime. And when Luke says, I talked to eyewitnesses, what he's saying is, I talked to people who saw this stuff happen in recent history. Some of these people were there, and you could still go talk to them too. Obviously, we can't thousands of years later. But when Luke wrote, he's saying, these people are, are still alive. You know, we're within, uh, even on the, the bigger end of the spectrum, we're within 50 years of, of the death of Jesus. And so we look at that and say, uh, do we know anybody who could tell us firsthand experience of history that happened 20 years ago? you know, around the, the turn of the millennium. I could, I could tell you, uh, you know, Rob last week in his sermon talked about 9-11. There's a whole bunch of us who remember where we were and what we were doing and what was reported and what happened. We could tell you firsthand experience uh, of our experience, at least, uh, of, of what happened then. Some of us could go back into the 90s or the 80s uh, or even further back than that and say, I remember stuff that happened. I was an eyewitness to certain events. Some of us, uh, we remember when Trudeau was prime minister, not Justin, his dad, uh, back in the 70s. And you could tell us about some of the history and things that you experienced back then. So Luke starts out by saying there's eyewitnesses here. There are people who saw this stuff. And one of the things that points to is that the Gospels we have in the Scripture, uh, widely accepted by scholars, are some of the earliest. And therefore, that's one of the criteria for one of the most reliable sources is that these were early. They were written based on eyewitness testimony, people that saw things happen. Now, there are gospels about Jesus that are later. And you can see that the, the later they get, sometimes the features really change. So some of you might remember years ago, there was a bit uh, of a stir caused by Dan Brown, who wrote a book called The Da Vinci Code. And uh, he, he, in that, it was a novel, so it was supposed to be fiction. Uh, but in that, he talks about some of the things about Jesus, like Jesus was married and he did certain things and said certain things uh, that were very foreign to uh, what's taught in the Bible. And where he got that information was from later Gospels. Gospels that, that come up uh, not just decades, but even centuries later. And the markings of those kind of Gospels versus the ones that we have in the Bible are very different. Um, there's a big difference in the ancient world of how they were write recent history. That is, we have eyewitnesses 
and we're telling about events that, that really happened, and some of this later history, which they would have called uh, novels, different than our type of novel a little bit. Um, but in the ancient world, uh, the, the further you got into history from an actual event, you would see that there were sort of uh, more legendary aspects that were added into some of those stories, and sometimes even events that would have been invented to maybe entertain, to maybe uh, drive home a point, make something bigger, uh, or, or add something to the story, change the story in a significant way. In the ancient world, if you were writing a, 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 a biography, you couldn't do that. That would have been against the rules. But if you're writing a novel, something that comes later and has these legendary, that's a different kind of genre where that would have been more acceptable. But we look back and we say, uh, in those cases, and, and scholars really widely agree on this, uh, that in the scriptures we have uh, the most early and reliable gospels written within a lifetime of the death of Jesus and where people, eyewitnesses, could be interviewed and talked to and followed up on and even corroborated. Secondly, Luke talks about written sources. So in that first line, he said, many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have happened. And so uh, I'm not the first one to write this down. There are other people who have written this down. We see that in the Bible, uh, we're, we're very certain that uh, the gospel writers had sources, written sources and oral sources. Oral sources that people pass down stories uh, and stories that really happened, history that happened. This was a part of the ancient world where they were so much better at this than us. And this is, again, just something uh, for us to, to be reminded that just because we're not good at something in our culture, don't do something in our culture, doesn't mean it can't be done or shouldn't be done. So uh, oral tradition and accurate storytelling of events, passing it down, was part of their culture. They did it very well. It wasn't like uh, a game of telephone that maybe we would think of. I, I say something to you and, and then you say it to somebody else, but, but the details get changed. And then, you know, by the time you go six, seven, eight people down, the story's completely different. That's really not how it worked in the ancient world. They were skilled and taught how to convey oral tradition in an accurate way, in a way that it went down from uh, person to person and, and generation to generation. So Luke's probably referring to that. He's also probably referring to uh, written sources. We know that uh, within the Bible, I'll talk about this in a second, there are uh, some gospels that use other gospels as sources for, you know, of information. We also know that there were other sources, and not all of them have survived through history, uh, but that there are other sources referred to where somebody had written something down, and we can corroborate that evidence, and then we can use it as as a source. And so Luke refers to the fact that there's other sources and other people who have written down these things that I've been able to figure out and I've been able to use. So the sources uh, for the Gospels that we have in the Bible, especially the Synoptic Gospels, which is Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, again, scholarly consensus say Mark was probably the first one written. Uh, it's the shortest Gospels, probably written in the 50s. Matthew and Luke both come along and write their accounts of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Now, Matthew and Luke... Uh, both used Mark as a source. We know this because there's material that's in Matthew and Luke and Mark, and it's all exactly the same, like word for word. Like I, I read this in Mark and I wrote it down and Luke, you know, Matthew does it, then Luke, same thing, writes it down. They're so similar. They're, they're right bang on. We can tell that Mark probably wrote this down. And then Matthew and Luke went to it and said, yeah, we're going to use that too. Now, Matthew and Luke also each have material that is unique to them. 
So Matthew in his gospel has uh, stuff that only Matthew says. Mark doesn't say it. And so he probably had a source for that. Or it's his own um, going to eyewitnesses and figuring it out. Luke also has his own stuff that's not in Matthew and it's not in Mark. It's independent to him that he's found out through his sources. And then Matthew and Luke have information that's exactly the same as each other but is not in Mark. And so scholars um, believe that there's probably another source that both Matthew and Luke used and brought into their gospel certain materials, but we don't have it. We haven't found it yet. They call it Q, and it's a theory. We don't know uh, anything concrete about Q, except that there's this material that is so exactly the same in Matthew and Luke that the theory is it must have come from another source that we don't have. But this is part of how they would bring together their gospels. They would have these written and oral sources. Now remember, when they're doing biographies, they couldn't invent events. And so we have, a, uh, we have differences in the Gospels, um, but also there's, there's a lot of similarities. In the differences, though, we'll find out in a second, that there is some freedom in how they tell the story. So hang on to that for just one more second. But these biographies are taught and based on history that are uh, used to not only teach information, but also to grab the reader's attention. After we have the compilation of eyewitness testimony, corroboration, and written and oral sources, uh, a, a work like this, a biography, uh, would be publicly read and published. And part of that is sort of the accountability uh, of the community. So if somebody uh, just invented uh, an event, again, we have eyewitnesses and people that knew eyewitnesses that would say, hey, that didn't happen. We're only 30 years from that. We remember that. And, and we, would be able to, uh, we would be able to refute things uh, that outright didn't happen. So uh, this is a little bit about how so the, especially the Gospel of Luke came to be, how something like this would have been written. Now, in history, if you go to a university, a secular university, um, not necessarily a Christian place, but just where, where scholars of all different kinds come together, you'll find this. There's no scholarly debate as to whether or not Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth existed, was believed to do miracles, was crucified, and whose followers claimed that he was risen from the dead. I mean, you can find somebody who will say anything, but among credible scholars, nobody debates any of those things. Jesus of Nazareth was a real person who existed. He did things that people believed were miracles. Now, not everybody believes in miracles or that miracles happened, but there's scholarly consensus that at least people believe Jesus could do miraculous things. There is consensus that Jesus was crucified. We have that from sources, not just in the Bible, but there's plenty of other sources in history and people like Josephus, uh, early historians uh, who tell us we know more about Jesus than we know about almost any other historical character from the time period. And we know a lot about some other uh, historical characters in that time period. Uh, but there's so much evidence. Nobody debates these things. Now, it doesn't mean they believe in Jesus' teaching or his miracles or his resurrection, but those facts are widely, widely agreed upon. And widely agreed upon that in the Christian Bible, we have uh, the, the most reliable sources uh, for Jesus' life. Even though there are gospels that come later, like the gospel of Thomas, you can come up with others if you Google and search it. Uh, but these are the earliest and most reliable um, gospels, biographies of Jesus that we have. I say that just because sometimes, again, you can Google stuff. You can find all kinds of people saying all kinds of things. Uh, but if you go to credible scholarship uh, within Christianity and without, these are some of the things that you find to be true. Now, that gives us a good foundation to have some confidence that what we read in the Gospels, we can rely on. And yet, internally in the Gospels, we run into a whole bunch of problems, inconsistencies, 
changes that, that seem not to fit. Chronology that's different. Let me talk to you about just a few of them and then we'll tackle just a couple of them as we go. So here's some of the problems um, where the Gospels don't necessarily agree. We have uh, the most famous teaching that Jesus has, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 to 7, where Jesus is on a mountain speaking. But we have uh, the same material. It's not exactly the same, but scholars agree it's, it's probably the same sermon in Luke chapter 6. And yet uh, in, in Matthew, Jesus goes up to a mountain and he preaches this sermon. In Luke, he comes down onto a plane. And you go, oh, is that a big deal? But well, the details don't matter. So which is it? Does he go up a mountain or does he come down to a plane? Why is there a contradiction there? Another big one is the, the temple incident. So we've talked about this. There's a time where Jesus went into the temple, really big deal, central place for the Jewish religion, right in Jerusalem. He overturns the, the tables. He drives people out. He makes a, a, a really big scene. Well, in John's gospel, that's one of the first things he does. It's right at the beginning of his ministry, but in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Luke, uh, it's at the end of his ministry, and it's actually one of the things, uh, one of the, the accelerators of why he is arrested and crucified. So did it happen at the beginning of his ministry, or did it happen three years later at the end? Well, the chronology doesn't even match up. How are we supposed to do with that? There's another key teaching, and it's around the temple incident, about a fig tree, a fig tree that is cursed, and then it withers. Well, in Mark chapter 11, the story goes that Jesus curses it, and then Jesus goes into the temple and he drives people out. Then he comes back and he teaches about, uh, they find it withered, and he teaches a lesson uh, that kind of encapsulates all that kind of stuff. But in Matthew 21, it happens all at once. He curses the tree and it withers and he teaches about it without stopping and going into the temple and coming back. In Luke chapter 13, uh, we have very similar teaching, but it's not something that actually happened. It's actually a parable that Jesus teaches about a fig tree. And so you say, which is it? Matthew, Mark, and Luke all have something very similar, but also very different. Can we really trust that and rely on it? There's other problems. If you really read closely, even the day that Jesus was crucified, if you look into it, you did he get crucified on a Friday? Maybe. Depends which gospel you read. How many angels were at the tomb when they, the disciples went uh, to find Jesus and they didn't find him? Instead, they found one angel or two angels. It's different in the gospels. Even where Jesus appeared to the disciples after his resurrection is different. And so we have these internal inconsistencies. And so while in history we can say we found um, that these are reliable documents, we go internally, they don't all agree. And so are they really reliable? We got to deal with that. And in order to do that, I'll remind you from our first week, uh, I believe we need to let the Bible be the Bible. We need to look into the conventions of the people who read it, not the conventions of those of us who are reading it a couple thousand years later. And we need to allow, um, allow the Bible to be the Bible and not to impose our expectations onto it. So what are the Gospels? What are we reading? And that's going to be really important for us to interpret it. We are reading ancient biography or bios. Some scholars will say it's pretty close to a Greco-Roman biography, which was, uh, like it sounds, the, the Greek-Roman world writing biographies. And they're not written the same way that we write them. They are literature that is interested in describing the goals, achievements, failures, and character of an ancient historical person and trying to answer the question, should this person be imitated? Here's the person. Here's their failures. Here's their triumphs. Here's their character. Is this somebody that we should follow? Oftentimes a heroic type. Some of the characteristics of an ancient biography that might help us work through uh, some of the, the issues. One, 
they are intentionally interpreted and in the, in the uh, case of the Gospels, theologize history. They are not really trying to be unbiased. They have a bias. They're interpreting events. They are theologizing events. And that's part of what they're trying to do. They are more topical than chronological. We'll look at some of the chronology. We say, why does the chronology in the Gospels not match up? They're all different. Because uh, themes are more important to lump together in this type of writing than chronology. We do it kind of the opposite way. If you're doing a biography of somebody's life, usually we say you have to start with their birth and then their childhood and then this event happened and that event happened and they grew up and you go through their life. And if you're skipping back and forth through periods of time, you're supposed to indicate that in some way. If it's a flashback or, oh, and then this story from my childhood, we would normally indicate that in a biography. But in an ancient biography, they're more interested in saying, I'm going to tell you about the character of, say, Jesus and what he thought about money. So I'm going to take a bunch of stories and things that he taught and things that he did, and I'll put them all in one place, even if they didn't happen chronologically like that. That was just their convention. They are adapted for their audience. And so they're mindful for, who am I writing to? Am I writing to, for the Gospels, a primarily Jewish audience, a, a non-Jewish audience? Um, what do people have in their background? What do we have to explain? What do we not have to explain? All based on what we're trying to teach and who we're trying to teach. They also use, and there's some freedom here, they use some creative ways to grab attention and teach moral lessons. And that's one of their, their big goals, to teach moral lessons and to ask, is this somebody that we could imitate? Is this someone we could follow? It's really important as we read through this, uh, as we read through this list. These things are sometimes are different than how we would do it. They are not mistakes or errors. They are not an attempt to mislead or provide inaccurate reports. They are purposeful devices to make their point and to depict their subject in a particular way. And this was their agreed upon way of doing that. So when we read something, we say, Chron chronologically, this, this is all contradictory. If we said that to one of the ancient writers of the gospels, they would say, what do you mean? I wasn't even trying to I wasn't writing this chronologically. I was writing it thematically. So I started with this theme and then I moved to another theme and I put these events together to make this point. That's how you write. And we would say, that's not always how we write. Well, we got to let the Bible be the Bible. Um, again, some of the, the license they, they would take and some of the details, they, they wouldn't have been able in recent history or a, a biography like this to invent uh, events, uh, but they do tell the story in a way uh, that brings out their point. So we'll talk about a couple of examples. Let's go to the example of, well, did Jesus preach this famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, on a mountain or on a plain? Again, scholars agree that the material, although it's edited and it's not word for word the same, it's the same material, it's, it's really the same sermon. Well, was it on a plain? Was it on a mountain? Which one of these gospel writers is lying? And the answer is neither of them. Here's what Matthew says. Matthew chapter 5, he says, seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. So Jesus was down, he went up the mountain to teach. Well, Luke talking about this in Luke chapter 6, he says it this way, when they came down from the mountain, so they were on the mountain, the disciples stood with Jesus on a large level area or a plain, surrounded by many of his followers and by the crowds. There were people from all over Judea and from Jerusalem and from as far north as the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. They had come to hear him and be healed of their diseases. And those troubled by evil spirits were healed. Everyone tried to touch him because healing power went out from him and he healed everyone. Okay, so which is it? And why do we have the differences? Now, remember, 
Ancient people are ancient, they're not stupid. So when people in the Christian community put these gospels together and we see differences, they didn't miss those. They knew there were differences. So the differences are partially there to help us to try and figure out the different emphases that the different writers have. And when we look for them, it'll illuminate for us the point that Matthew had and maybe the point that Luke had and where they're different, teach us something different, which is a great treasure. So why would Matthew say that Jesus went up the mountain and Luke came down the mountain? Well, uh, one thing we might notice if you read the Gospel of Matthew closely is one of the things Matthew is trying to convey, one of his main theme points, is that Jesus is the new Moses. He is writing to a primarily Jewish audience, a Jewish audience uh, who lives by the law. And Moses was the great lawgiver. In fact, the story of Moses is that when the people uh, had come out of Egypt, he went up the mountain, and up on the mountain, he met with God. And then he came from the mountain, and he gave the law to the people. And that was how they were supposed to live, how they were supposed to relate to God, and how they relate to others. And for them, it became the, the central way that they ordered not just their individual lives, but families and culture. We all live this way. We are by the law. Matthew's trying to make the point in a number of different ways that we don't have time to get into, that Jesus is the new and better Moses and he's bringing a new law, the law of love. He's taking the law of Moses and going deeper and further. And so in his version of the, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, one of the emphases is the antitheses where we've talked about this a number of times. But it's times where Jesus he used this rhetorical device where he said, you've heard it said, and then he quoted the Old Testament law or a classic interpretation of Old Testament law. And then he says, but I tell you, so I'm giving you a, a new way of living out this law, a law that goes further and deeper into the heart of God. He is the new Moses. He's the new lawgiver saying, you've heard these laws, but now I'm telling you that the real law goes deeper to the heart of God of love. And that's what he brings out in all of those antitheses. Because Matthew wants his Jewish audience to know that a new Moses is here. So remember Moses up on the mountain? Well, now we have Jesus up on the mountain. He goes up the mountain to teach us and give us the new law. Luke is teaching uh, an audience that is more mixed and probably more Gentile, that is not Jewish, people that don't have that background. And one of the things that Luke is trying to teach, one of his main themes, is that Jesus is actually like the new David. The great king is here. And in the early chapters of Luke, he contrasts uh, the titles, even the titles that are given to the current leaders, uh, Jewish and Roman, and says, Jesus is now this great leader. He's the true son of God, for example, this title that is given to him. Uh, not Caesar, not, not the emperor, not even our king that we have now. But this is the new king, just like David was our great king uh, back in, in centuries ago. And when we read about uh, the setup for the sermon in, uh, in Luke, instead of going up to a mountain as a lawgiver... Jesus comes down to a plain like a shepherd, like David. David was a shepherd king. A plain would be a place a shepherd king would be very at home, right? I'm here to, to feed the sheep. And we hear stories about that later in Luke. That's part of the motif that he gets, this shepherd king that would go and, and seek and save, say, the lost sheep, which is in, in Luke. And Luke doesn't have all that, he doesn't include all that part about the antitheses about the law. Why? That's not his, his primary concern. And so he doesn't need to make the point that Jesus is the new lawgiver because Matthew made that point. But Jesus is making the point that he is like David, the new and better David. 
even that part we read about how uh, Jesus uh, had come down and he was healing people troubled by evil spirits. The language there is so much like 1 Samuel 16, which talks about David before he was king. He was invited into the king's court, which was Saul, and Saul was troubled by a spirit and they brought David in to play the harp for him. And Saul loved him at that point because he, he gave him peace from the troubling spirit that had been laid upon him. And then David would become the new king when Saul uh, really became corrupted and was no longer fit to be king. David became the king. So now, what do we have in Luke? We have this shepherd king coming to a place where he's going to care for his sheep, playing a field, and he's healing people of their troubled spirits, just like David did for Saul. Right? These are the thematic things that are, are brought forth, and, and the differences are brought out because the authors are trying to say, I want to tell you about about the new Moses. But Luke is trying to say, I want to tell you about the new David. And so they're using details around the same event to tell the story very differently. We might say, well, that's contradictory. Yeah, I guess it is in a sense. But what we're really seeing is a contrast that helps us learn more and more about Jesus. And for somebody writing an ancient biography, this was the freedom that they had. This was not misleading. This was not thought to be inaccurate. It was not thought to be a mistake. It was what was expected convention for people to tell about the character that they're talking about. Think of the, the temple incident. Uh, again, we talked about where Jesus goes in and he, he flips the tables uh, in the temple. Why would it be that in John's gospel, he does this at the beginning of his ministry, but in the synoptic gospels, uh, the other three, uh, he does this at the end. Why can't they agree on that kind of chronology? Well, again, we have to say, well, why would there be differences? Let's think through why someone would change. So John uh, was the last gospel written, probably written in uh, the 90s of the first century. And so uh, you've got some time passed. Why is it that the first three Gospels, which are probably more in terms of chronology, historically accurate, why would John change that detail so drastically? Now, some people have tried to pave this over and say, oh, no, 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 he did it twice. He did it the beginning and the end. There's no way historically that would happen. If somebody did this in the temple, like this is like, this is like uh, in January in the United States, we saw people storming their capital. This is like if the same guy wandered up to the Capitol, what would they do? There's no way he gets in again. It happened once and we were all shocked enough. But there's no way that same person or same people get in again. They, they beef up security to make sure it doesn't happen. So it didn't happen twice. Why the difference in chronology? Well, look at the story in John. Why would he change it? John starts out by being very philosophical in the first chapter, talking about the word becoming flesh, God's true intention, becoming a human being and showing us what God is like. In chapter 2, the first thing he does is he does a miracle by turning water into wine at a wedding. Very important is he takes, if you read that account, he takes ceremonial, religious ceremonial jugs of water. And that's what he uses to turn into wine. He uses that kind of water. And he makes a powerful statement. The substance of your religion, he's not being anti-Jewish. He's not saying uh, the Jewish religion uh, is awful. He's saying, the way that you're living this out is empty. It's water and it should be wine. I am bringing wine. So what your religion is supposed to hold, good wine, which brings uh, joy and satisfaction. It's beautiful and wonderful. You've filled with water, which is not potent and it's, you know, it's basically empty. So Jesus makes this powerful statement on the state of their religious lives. I'm bringing new wine. Turn your boring water into what it's supposed to be, wine. 
And then what does he do the very next thing? He goes to the temple, the center of their religious life, and he turns over the tables and he says uh, that you've made, my, uh, you've made this a marketplace and he drives them out. Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they have the same incident, but later. And it fits their story of why did Jesus get arrested and crucified? Well, because he goes into the temple and he makes this huge fuss and they were already upset about it. And now they're really upset about it. And so they're going to get him. But for John, the entire theme of his book, Jesus coming and showing us what real religion, real faith, real trust looks like, is set up by turning water into wine. And then we're going to undo the way that this religion has been corrupted and we're going to start over. So that's how he leads into the story. For the other synoptic gospels, that is the culmination of the story. We're driving towards that. It's a different way of telling the story. Again, the differences are not mistakes. They're purposeful in order to emphasize different elements of Jesus' life and teaching. And so if we just judge the gospels by how we would write them, we're going to get into trouble. We're going to say, this doesn't make sense. But if we read it the way that it was meant to be written and we let the Bible be the Bible, we see that these differences actually illuminate so much for us. So what, what can we do? Um, I, I just, here's my encouragement as you read through the Gospels uh, of, of how you can kind of make sense and really draw some of the richness out of the differences. When you encounter differences in the Gospels, so as you read through the Gospels, and you come to something, compare it to uh, another gospel. And maybe it's not even in another gospel, or maybe it looks different, or maybe it's exactly the same. Here's some things that you can do to really uh, help those emphases come to the surface and for you to learn more about Jesus. Number one, identify the main point in each gospel. So just read it through. What is Luke saying? What is Matthew saying? What is their main point by telling the story the way that they do? Number two, compare and contrast the differences. So how are they different? What's the same, but then what's different about them? And then ask, what emphases do these differences draw us toward? What does each teach us? So if I learn this from Matthew, what do I learn when Luke changes it? What is Luke now drawing my attention to that Matthew didn't? And how do I take that and learn even more? And when we do that, I think we're going to get an even bigger and greater picture of Jesus. And we'll see that these writers were trying to teach us about the character about the triumphs, about the low points of Jesus, and then asking us whether or not he's someone that we should imitate. And when we can work through some of these differences and realize that we can have a lot of confidence in what the Gospels tell us about Jesus, and when we can have that confidence by asking those questions about the differences and even wading into them and asking what they can teach us, then we can come to what can be really transformative and really powerful and can really make a difference. Then we can ask the question, is this someone worth imitating? And so, Heavenly Father, we pray that as we study your scriptures and as we try to do justice to how they were written by people a long time ago, we pray that ultimately you would lead us to a place where we ask that question, can we imitate Jesus? What would our lives look like if we were more like him? We ask for your help by your Holy Spirit for us to be able to live those things out. And then in doing so, that we would see the way that you're working around us in really, truly incredible ways. So thank you for these great gifts of the Gospels, for their differences that teach us so much, and the confidence that we can have in them. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.